0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Let me read from
1: Matthew 11:12. 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now... The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Christ puts an end to the notion that God's kingdom can be taken by violence. The revelation of Christ directly and singularly addresses violence, war, the self destructive instinct, exposing, in fact, what may be largely unconscious and bringing it to consciousness, exposing evil in the light of who he is, addressing what is hidden, and exposing it to peace, to the light of truth. As Christ says from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. His life and death is an exposure of the orientation toward violence and death, And in exposing it, he replaces it with love, with peace, with truth, as a real-world possibility for all of us. The exposure of this blindness, I believe, is the key part of Revelation. Peter confirms as much. He says, now I know, brothers, that neither you nor your leaders had any idea what you were doing in Acts 3.17, 3:17 talking about their crucifixion of the Lord of glory. Now God commands all men everywhere to repent of the violence that they've done. Paul describes Christ as revealing the mystery which has remained closed to every previous generation of humankind in Ephesians 3:5. In Paul's description this mystery revealed is that all mankind is divided by a wall of violence and hostility. But now in Christ, they are to be united. And this wall of hostility is now being broken down, is broken down by Christ. That is, I believe the New Testament proclaims the period of violence in which the kingdom would be violently manipulated through the hostility of the law. This period is exposed and defeated by the one who is our peace. On June 13th, the novelist Cormac McCarthy died. And then on June 16th, Daniel Ellsberg, who you may know as the whistleblower who provided the Pentagon Papers to the Washington Post, the New York Times, and actually about 19 other newspapers, he died also. I wouldn't have normally put the two men in conjunction with each other. They're completely different circles with seemingly different interests. And yet in McCarthy's novels, which won the Pulitzer Prize, he was actually, uh, people were talking about him winning the Nobel Prize, his focus in his novels is on the worship of war and violence and killing. They're bleak and Ellsberg's revelations concerning the wantonness, first of all, of the Vietnam War. And then what he did not immediately publish, but which he published at the end of his life, the nuclear war plans that the United States had put into place during the time that he was helping, actually. And the message that both authors describe is that war and destruction are deeply embedded in political commitments and in the human psyche. The political and almost religious need for war arise in McCarthy's novels according to a kind of unconscious need, or in Ellsberg's picture, a kind of secretive and manipulative purpose, you know, politically and war and death are pursued beyond reason and ultimately to the point of extinction either for the individuals involved or in the case of the doomsday scenario described by Ellsberg for all of us and that is of the two the facts reported by Ellsberg these may be the most incomprehensible of either one the pure Mutually assured destruction, or MAD. It is literally insanity. The nuclear holocaust scenarios, that this was actually put in place during the time of conflict over Taiwan. And as he describes in the prologue of his book called The Doomsday Machine, he says, One day in the spring of 1961, soon after my 30th birthday, I was shown how our world would end. Not the earth itself, not so far as I knew then mistakenly, nearly all humanity or life on the planet, but the destruction of most cities and most people in the northern hemisphere. And this is not, you know, he's not describing an accident. He's not describing a first launch of Soviets at that time. He's rather describing the plans, that is, this was the planned first strike of the United States and their estimate of how many would die in this first strike. So it's the equivalent of a 100 holocausts, about 325 million deaths were estimated. And when they were estimated, the plan was put into place. Now what neither Ellsberg nor anyone understood at that point was that the plans put into place by the United States, if executed, would result in what is called nuclear winter, and literally the destruction of all human life on Earth. Now Ellsberg reports this, and of course since that time, this has become well known, but his book reports these plans are still in place in spite of this understanding. That is, to win a nuclear war, the war that we have as part of our strategy, would require the destruction of all human life on Earth. And yet, you know, Ellsberg is kind of an interesting character because he exposes this. He has two small children. His boy is 13 and his son is actually the head of Orbis Press now. But she was only like 8 years old and. Both children wanted to help him. He he explained to them what he was doing. And so his son was helping copy. And the daughter wanted to do something too. And so he had her cut off top secret on all of the. He gave her a pair of scissors. And he literally, there's thousands and thousands of pages. But he lost the doomsday scenario. That is, his brother hid it and it got lost in a garbage dump. But Ellsberg's actions are really hopeful. He decided he would go to prison. He knew he'd go to prison for the rest of his life. I think they were trying to put him in jail for 115 years. And, of course, what happens is that's when President Nixon orders the break-in into his psychiatrist's office, Ellsberg's psychiatrist, and then the Watergate. And so the judge in charge of his trial just dismisses the case. The evil, the overwhelming evil is indescribable, but maybe just his uh, willingness to go to jail is incomprehensible. What I'm saying is the novels of Cormac McCarthy may be more understandable. And the key novel that has been cited, Blood Meridian, it's just dark and nihilistic. As I've said, it's based on a true story, but everything is kind of menacing. The, the novel takes place in an area I'm very familiar with, with the desert of Texas and northern New Mexico and Mexico proper. The novel's based on this, these historical events. The, the Glantons and his militia were hired by the state of Mexico to kill Apaches and to, to commit genocide, basically, to wipe them out. And the gang were paid according to the number of scalps that they brought in. And, of course, they quickly learned, well, any dark head of hair, they could get the same amount of money, whether it was a child, a woman, a Mexican, an Apache, or friendly Indians. They just start killing everybody because most people had dark hair. And eventually they became so notorious that the Mexican militia chases them out of Mexico and into Arizona, and then in Yuma, Arizona, they set up a ferry business across the Colorado River and they just kill the customers as they come to them and take their money. So it's a true story, but it's fictionalized. And then much of the novel takes place in the desert. And he, it's interesting the way he describes the desert. This desert upon which so many have been broken is vast and calls for largeness of heart. But it is ultimately empty. It is hard, it is barren, its very nature is stone. And of course, what he's describing is not just the desert, but human nature. That the desert is a kind of representative of violence and war, that they're made of the same stuff. A key character in his book is also based on a historical figure, a judge. And the judge says, it makes no difference what men think of war. War endures, as well ask men what they think of stone. War was always here. Before man was, war waited for him. The ultimate trade awaiting its ultimate practitioner. That is the way it was and will be. That way and no other. And so war in the explanation of the judge. This is actually not just the motive force of being human, but it gives meaning to human activity. He says all other trades are contained in that of war. It's the deepest of motives. He says it endures because young men love it and old men love it in them. Those that fought and those that did not. In fact, war and killing create meaning where there otherwise would be none. The judge is a, a kind of mystical figure in McCarthy's depiction. We're not quite sure if he's even human. But he pictures war like a card game between two players in which the loser forfeits his life. And this then gives meaning to the game. In the turn of a card, with life on the line, he says, what more certain validation of a man's worth could there be? The enhancement of the game its ultimate state admits no argument concerning the notion of fate. The selection of one man over another is a preference absolute and irrevocable and it is a dull man who indeed would reckon so profound a decision without agency or significance. That is, the meaning is created by the investment of the life in it. This is very much a picture of the description of idolatry, by the way. Why human sacrifice in idolatry? Because the sacrifice of life gives meaning to the idolatrous worship. And the idol is lent agency. He says, this is the nature of war whose stake is at once the game and the authority and the justification. That is, this is a form of divinization. Or divination. It is the testing of one's will and the will of another within that larger will. And what he's describing is all ethics, all religion, all human purpose is ultimately caught up in this understanding of war. War is the ultimate game because war is at last a forcing of the unity of existence. War is God, the judge concludes. That is, it provides meaning, it provides purpose, and it's the true God driving the game of life in the valuation of the judge. McCarthy verges on theological and psychoanalytic insight. I believe Christ reveals the dark, unconscious secrets of the human heart. The same darkness that there in McCarthy's novel, the same secret plans that are there in Ellsberg's exposures. And in exposing them, I believe this is the first step. We might credit Daniel Ellsberg with the end of the Vietnam War, with the publication of the Pentagon Papers. Articulating evil, describing it, exposing it. I believe that's the purpose of Christ, and that's the first step in confronting evil and Christ in exposing the imperative for violence in the human condition, I believe it gives us a picture of what is really at the center of the human heart. You know, I'm thinking here that every administration, from President Truman to the present administration, they have put into place the plans that Ellsberg is describing. They plotted to destroy the world in order to win the war. Naming the evil and describing this darkness exposes the madness. McCarthy doesn't appeal to Freud or the New Testament, but it comes very close to raising the question. He says, does the unconscious know it's going to die? And he comes close to the Freudian notion or the biblical notion that death and the orientation to death is where evil enters in. In his novel, he has a few kind of semi-religious moments. And there's an ex-slaver who's gotten religion in talking about the human heart. He says, no, it's a mystery. A man's at odds to know his mind because his mind is ought as he ought to know it with. That is, how can you know your own mind when it's your mind you're doing the knowing with? He can know his heart, but he don't want to. Rightly so. Best not to look in there. It ain't the heart of a creature that is bound in the way that God has said it. You can find meanness in the least of creatures. But when God made man, the devil was at his elbow. A creature that can do anything. Make a machine and a machine to make the machine. And evil that can run itself a thousand years. No need to tend it. The machinery this character describes sounds very much like Daniel Ellsberg's doomsday machine. It is mutually assured destruction writ in incremental decisions, which ultimately trumps every morality, every law, every form of justice as war and killing are the reigning logic, the reigning morality, the reigning law. The judge uses another example of a duel. You know, when two men enter into a duel, the arguments and its specifics really don't matter anymore. In the trial that he calls the historical absolute, the ready willingness to put all at stake in this higher court indicates human willfulness and, interestingly, human pride. In the story, there's a priest. I don't know if the priest is based on a historical character or not. But he's an ex-priest who's joined the gang. And the judge turns to the priest and says, Well, priest, give me an argument. Give me a counter-argument. And the priest refuses. Ah, the priest says not, the judge says. But the priest has said, For the priest has put by the robes of his craft and taken up the tools of that higher calling which all men honor. The priest also would be no God-server, but a God himself. That is, the priest, the Christian among them, is proof by his presence in the violence that his religion, his true religion, is that of war. And in laying aside his robes to do battle, he is bowed to the God of war the higher calling, which all men honor. The court of annihilation and survival is the ultimate justification, and McCarthy's novel slowly reveals this. In his description, I think we come to comprehend mutually assured destruction. Only those willing to put everything at stake to bring down the world can enter the game, and by entering, the outcome is decided. Once you decide to play this game, the end is decided. The judge argues, I don't know if you're familiar with the Anasazi. they are people in Arizona in the southwest. They've left monuments, Montezuma's castle. But these people have completely disappeared, and yet they left behind this marvelous evidence of their civilization. And the judge points to the Anasazi as an example of what happens to all civilizations. These people completely annihilated in the past represent the destiny of all those who play the game. These people left the remains of a culture. The natives that surround them are not able to construct and build the sort of building that these people made. The judge says the way of the world is to bloom and to flower and die. But in the affairs of men, there is no waning, and the noon of his expression signals the onset of his night. His spirit is exhausted at the peak of his achievement. His meridian is at once his darkening, and the evening of his day. That is, the more successful, the more deadly. This vanished people, the way of those who play the game. He loves games. Let him play for stakes. This you see, according to the judge, these ruins wandered at by tribes of savages. Do you not think this will happen again? That there will be extinction and extinction again and again. And so in conclusion, Ellsberg's exposure of the Pentagon Papers, in its exposure, demonstrates the insanity, the hubris, You know, his exposure of the doomsday scenario, the destructiveness, the near-perfect nihilism connected with secret violence and covert plans. McCarthy's fiction is one illustration of the pure horror and evil which roots the human need for violence. As his novel unfolds, You know, violence, it might seem to be a means to some other end. You know, oh, well, they're opening up new territory. They're exterminating the savages. Uh, They're making money. But by the end of the novel, they're just killing for no reason at all. Violence is its own purpose and end. Jesus cites the passage in Hosea in Matthew 9 and in chapter 12, right after the verse that we begin with. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And of course he's talking about himself, but he's also describing the history of murder. And he literally, he begins with the first murder and the last murder in the Hebrew Bible. It's not only his death, but all murder, which Christ links to their misapprehended religion. Jesus claims that the history of murder and violence is interwoven with spiritual blindness, imagining one can take the kingdom through violence. This is Matthew 23, 34 to 36. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will scourge, in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. That upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. I say to you, all this will come upon this generation. Here is the history of murder. He says, you've done it. And of course, They say, well, we didn't do this. He said, yes, but this is the religion that you practice. And today I'm exposing the nature of this religion to you. Jesus exposes the history of murder, the secret of violence. And those who cling to this violence are not of his kingdom. This is the gospel.
0: Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom